I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 9, verse 15, which is our text for the sermon this Lord's Day. In a previous sermon dealing with national covenanting, we have considered in some detail this chapter, but there is a, a particular point that needs to be emphasized from this chapter, this Lord's Day, and we find it in verse 15. Joshua 9.15 And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. In the previous sermon on national covenanting, we noted that colonial charters were the legal covenant and contract between the Crown of Britain and the colonies in North America. In the very words used in the colonial charters, the crown of Britain and all successors to the throne guaranteed to the colonies and all of their posterity as loyal subjects of the crown, all of the liberties, rights, and privileges to which those living in England were entitled. This was universally understood to include the liberties, rights, and privileges of due process guaranteed under Magna Carta, which was adopted in 1215 A.D. In fact, when the colonies began to defend themselves, and that's the point I want to focus in on in the early part of the sermon today, when the colonies began to defend themselves against what they termed acts of tyranny by the crown and parliament of Great Britain, to what constitutional documents did they turn? They turned primarily to the Magna Carta and to the colonial charters. The, col the colonies believed their rights as loyal subjects of the crown of Britain were guaranteed by these historical covenants. And that these historical covenants had a descending obligation to the posterity of both the crown and the subjects of the crown to all succeeding generations. How is it then, dear ones, that a lawful covenant made between a human king and his subjects can bind succeeding generations and even bind the colonies in America. Speaking of the Magna Carta here. But a national covenant made between God, the King of Kings, and all the posterity of England does not bind the colonies. Listen to a few excerpts from both ministers and congressional assemblies in America 
who forcefully defended their rights as loyal British subjects of the crown on the basis of these two historical documents, the Magna Carta and the colonial charters. Jonathan Mayhew said the following in a sermon preached on May the 23rd, 1766 on the occasion of the repeal of the Stamp Act. Quote, It shall be taken for granted that this natural right, that is, to our own property, is declared, affirmed, and secured to us as we are British subjects by Magna Carta, all acts contrary to which are said to be ipso facto, that is, by the fact itself, null and void. And that this natural constitutional right has been further confirmed to most of the plantations by particular subsequent royal charters taken in their obvious sense. The legality and authority of which charters was never once denied by either house of parliament. You see, Mayhew argued that the right to own and dispose of their own property as colonies was guaranteed by the Magna Carta and the colonial charters. Is it not clear that this minister is an example of many colonial ministers argued that the rights guaranteed in uh, a historical covenant between the crown of England and the free subjects of England were passed on to the colonies by means of the colonial charters? Now, if that is true of Magna Carta, how much more it is true of the Solemn League and Covenant for there are no greater rights guaranteed to the crown of Britain and to the subjects of the crown than those biblical rights and duties articulated in the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643, which rights and duties we have considered in a uh, previous sermon in more detail. Another minister in the colonies, Moses Mather, issued an essay entitled America's Appeal to the Impartial World in 1775, wherein we note these words. And these original compacts, that is the colonial charters, were made and entered into by the king not only for himself, but expressly for his heirs, and successors on the one part, and the colonies, their successors and assigns, that is, heirs, on the other, whereby the connection was formed not only between the parties then in being, but between the crown and the colonies through all successions of each. And those compacts are permanent and perpetual, as unalterable as Magna Carta 
or the primary principles of the English Constitution. Nor can they be vacated or changed by the king any more than by the colonies. Nor be forfeited by one more than the other. For they are mutually obligatory on both and are the ligaments and bonds that connect the colonies with the great with the king of Great Britain and the king with them. I ask you, dear ones, how is it that the rights of mere men in a national covenant, the Magna Carta, can be so sacred as to be binding to all succeeding generations in England and in the colonies. But the rights of Almighty God in a lawful national covenant are not sacred and do not bind all succeeding generations in England and in the colonies. What abominable blasphemy is this that the Most High God should be treated as less than a mere man and his divine rights less than mere human rights. Finally, before moving on, let the testimony of not only ministers but that of congressional assemblies likewise demonstrate that the colonies appealed directly to their colonial charters, and in some cases to the Magna Carta again, as the historical covenants that guaranteed to them all of the liberties, not some, but all of the liberties, rights, and privileges enjoyed by all those natural-born subjects of the crown living in England. Since, therefore, the Solemn League and Covenant of Britain declared the biblical rights and duties of both crown and subjects, all of the colonies, by way of their charters, were engaged to the same biblical rights and duties and to the same national covenant, the National Solemn League and Covenant, as they were to Magna Carta as were all of the inhabitants of Great Britain. The first document is from the Virginia House of Burgess, May 29, 1765, in which it clearly defends their rights as loyal British subjects by appealing to the colonial charters made between the crown and the colony over 150 years earlier. There we read two resolutions in particular that I'm focusing on, resolved that the first adventurers and settlers of this His Majesty's colony and dominion of Virginia brought with them and transmitted to their posterity and all others His Majesty's subjects since inhabiting in this His Majesty's colony all the privileges and immunities that have at any time been held, enjoyed, and possessed by the people of Great Britain. Resolved 
that by the two royal charters granted by King James I, the colonists aforesaid are declared entitled to all privileges of faithful liege, that is loyal, and natural-born subjects to all intents and purposes as if they had been abiding and born within the realm of England. The second document is from the House of Representatives of Massachusetts, October 29, 1765. This declaration even mentions in particular rights founded upon the law of God, which is exactly what the rights and duties guaranteed in the Solemn League and Covenant are founded upon. We read in that document, Whereas the just rights of His Majesty's subjects of this province derived to them from the British Constitution as well as the Royal Charter have been lately drawn into question. In order to ascertain the same, this house do unanimously come into the following results. Resolved. That there are certain essential rights of the British Constitution of government which are founded in the law of God and nature and are the common rights of mankind. Therefore, Resolved that the inhabitants of this province are unalienably entitled to those essential rights in common with all men, and that no law of society can, consistent with the law of God and nature, divest them of those rights. Resolved that this inherent right, together with all other essential rights, liberties, privileges, and immunities of the people of Great Britain, have been fully confirmed to them by Magna Carta and by former and by later Acts of Parliament. Resolved that His Majesty's subjects in America are in reason and common sense entitled to the same extent of liberty with His Majesty's subjects in Britain. And finally, resolved that by the declaration of the royal charter of this province, the inhabitants are entitled to all rights, liberties, and immunities of free and natural subjects of Great Britain to all intents, purposes, and constructions, whatever. The last document is not a, a declaration by a single colony, but is the United Declaration by the First Continental Congress of the United Colonies, which was adopted October the 14th, 1774. Quote, that the inhabitants of the English colonies in North America, by the immutable laws of nature, the principles of the English Constitution, 
and the several charters or compacts have the following rights. Resolved, that our, that our ancestors who first settled these colonies were at the time of their emigration from the mother country entitled to all the rights, liberties, and immunities of free and natural-born subjects within the realm of England. Resolved, that by such immigration, they by no means forfeited, surrendered, or lost any of those rights, but they but that they were and their descendants now are entitled to the exercise and enjoyment of all such of them as their local and other circumstances enable them to exercise and enjoy. If, dear ones, the colonies did not lose any of those rights guaranteed to English subjects in their national constitution when they emigrated to His Majesty's dominions and colonies in North America, they certainly did not lose any of those rights guaranteed to English subjects in their national solemn league and covenant when they emigrated across the ocean to the colonies. Let's consider an objection before looking at our text. Before considering our text then, there may be one objection that arises from a consideration of when the colonies came under the dominion of the crown. It may be objected that when half of the colonies received their charters from the crown, there was no solemn league and covenant, which, which was established in 1643. How could half of the colonies be bound by the solemn league and covenant when it was that is, the Solemn League and Covenant was non-existent at the time that they became dominions of the crown. Answer. Even though half the colonies were established prior to the Solemn League and Covenant in 1643, did these same colonies exist after the Solemn League and Covenant? After 1643. Yes, in fact, all of the colonies established prior to 1643 also existed as colonies after 1643. Thus, any liberty, right, privilege, law, or covenant that applied to all subjects of the crown would apply to all those dominions of the crown established before 1643. Was the Magna Carta only applicable to those free subjects of the crown born after it was established? Or did it apply to all those who were living and free subjects of the crown whether they were born before or after the establishment of Magna Carta? Let me ask you, are laws and treaties that are lawful and that are established after your birth 
also applicable to you? Of course. Of course they are. Who would possibly win a legal argument by, by arguing that he is not obligated to obey that law or treaty because it was not established at the time of his birth, but rather became a law after the time of his birth? Dear ones, the question as to whether a colony is bound by the National Solemn League and Covenant is not when did a colony become a colony? But rather, the real question is whether, the, uh, whether that colony exists as a colony after the establishment of the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. If it has existence after the establishment of that covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, then the Solemn League and Covenant applies to it as one of His Majesty's dominions. Well, our first, quite a long introduction, um, the rest of the sermon isn't going to uh, uh, unnecessarily extend the, the sermon, uh, but I thought it was important to, to establish a little bit more detail from the previous sermon, to, to elaborate a little bit more. And so there were a few loose ends that I wanted to tie up before moving on to our first main point. And our first main point uh, from our text is this. A lawful and binding national covenant upon all posterity is established by the federal representatives of the people. Look with me again at Joshua 9.15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. Joshua chapter 9 details the national covenant made between Israel and Gibeon. The Gibeonites, you'll recall, were one of the nations of Canaan that were to be destroyed or devoted to destruction according to God's instructions to the Israelites. In one of the previous sermons in this series, the, the deception of the Gibeonites and how that relates to lawful covenants was addressed in some detail, and I simply refer you back to that previous sermon. I will not be addressing that again in the sermon today, but merely focusing on the point that was just made. As we look more closely at Joshua 9.15, we observe the following principles. First of all, a firm national covenant was made between Israel and Gibeon when the chief representatives of each nation covenanted with each other. Note that in this case, there was no popular vote of all the Israelites taken, nor did all of the Israelites personally engage themselves in this national covenant. In fact, it may be inferred that the vast majority of the Israelites were very upset with the national covenant that was made, as we read in Joshua 9.18, and all the congregation murmured against the princes. The only people that formally swore the national covenant between Israel and Gibeon were Joshua and the princes of Israel 
and we assume likewise the official representatives of Gibeon. Nevertheless, since the national covenant was lawful, it was agreeable to God's word, and we explained, as I said, I'm not going to go into detail at this point, since that I spent quite a bit of time explaining why it was agreeable to God's word uh, from in a previous sermon, but I did, I, did, I believe, uh, establish that it was agreeable to God's word because the main reason, because it continued to be binding upon the people, as we see, uh, and we'll see in just a moment. Since the national covenant was lawful, and since the official representatives of the nation swore it, it could not be broken no matter how unhappy the people were at large with that national covenant. This national covenant is not the second main uh, or the second principle from the text that I want to make is this. This national covenant is not distinctly Jewish for it equally binds the Israelites as well as the Gibeonites. Thus, it cannot be argued that the moral principles involved in this national covenant do not apply to Gentile nations, for Gibeon was a Gentile nation. A third principle from the text. This national covenant was not made directly with God. God was a, certainly a witness to it, but it was not made directly with God, but was a covenant between two nations. How much more sacred and unbreakable, then, would be a national covenant made directly with God as one of the parties in the covenant, as was true of the National Solemn League and Covenant, even if every single individual within the nation wasn't very happy with it? The fourth principle from our text. This national covenant in Joshua chapter 9 continued to bind posterity in all succeeding generations even though only the official representatives of each nation swore it and not the people at large as is evidenced by God's judgment brought upon Israel over 400 years later when the Lord brought a three-year famine upon Israel for Saul's slaying of the Gibeonites in 2 Samuel 22.1. Thus, to summarize, in spite of the deception of the Gibeonites and in spite of the fact that the ordinary Israelite did not personally engage himself in this national covenant made between Israel and Gibeon, and in spite of the fact that, that the common Israelite was very upset with the national covenant that was made with the Gibeonites, there was nevertheless a lawful national covenant established and a lawful national covenant that bound not only the present generation of Israelites and Gibeonites then living, but also all succeeding generations of Israelites and Gibeonites that lived thereafter. Dear ones, covenants are binding upon posterity, not because 
listen, not because posterity has personally engaged itself to the covenant or because posterity remembers the covenant or because posterity loves the covenant. Covenants are binding upon posterity because they are lawful, first and foremost, because they are lawful and agreeable to God's law. And then because their official representatives have sworn to such a covenant on their behalf. This is certainly true of the covenants that we find throughout the scripture. I want to briefly articulate a number of covenants in the scripture and demonstrate that principle that when the official representative swears a covenant or engages himself and his posterity in that covenant, the posterity do not have to personally engage themselves in, for, in order for that covenant to be binding upon posterity. First of all, the covenant of redemption. From all eternity, God chose his elect in Christ Jesus. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. The covenant of redemption was established on the basis of the official mediator or representative, the Son of God, binding himself to save his people from their sins. That covenant being made before the foundation of the world, it did not depend, therefore, upon the consent of the people who were to be saved. It didn't hinge upon, it didn't hang upon the consent of the people. That was determined from all eternity. In fact, they were chosen in Christ because they were accounted to be dead in their trespasses and sins and therefore unable to believe in Christ. Second covenant, the covenant of works. This covenant was made with Adam and all his posterity by ordinary generation. Adam's fall and judgment was the fall and judgment of all mankind by ordinary generation. We read in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die. This covenant was made with the Father and the federal head of mankind without the consent of the posterity. Third, the covenant of grace. This covenant was made with Christ as mediator on behalf of his elect after the fall of man in order to accomplish the terms of the covenant of redemption. This is the fulfilling of the covenant of redemption in time. And there we, we read again, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ's work in time to save his people did not ultimately 
finally depend upon their consent, for they were all dead in Adam, as, as the verse says. Whereas in Adam all die, they were dead. So even in Christ all shall be made alive. They were made alive, therefore, in Christ. Though they were dead in Adam. Even the faith exercised by God's elect in time is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Fourth, the covenant made with Noah in Genesis 9, verses 8 through 17. The covenant God made with Noah not to destroy the world by water included not only Noah, but all Noah's posterity after him. Noah was the federal representative for all his posterity. The consent of the posterity was never sought in order to make this covenant binding upon or unto posterity. The covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 17, 7. This covenant was made with Abraham and all his posterity, even though the posterity never consented. It's hard for an infant eight days old to consent to this covenant, and yet that, that child becomes a member or part of that covenant. And that is demonstrated that he is a member, that he is under that covenant, it is demonstrated, it is sealed and applied by way of the, in, to Abraham uh, and his seed uh, there at that time by way of circumcision. Abraham was the federal representative for his posterity in this covenant. Posterity may hate the covenant, as we said. The posterity of Abraham may hate the covenant, but they are bound by it, even if they hate it. They may not personally engage themselves in it, uh, voluntarily engage themselves in it, but they are bound by it. They may break the covenant, but they cannot annul the covenant. Six, the covenant made with Israel. In Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 15, there we see all the posterity were bound by this national covenant without their consent. For we read in verse 15, and also this covenant, uh, the national covenant of Israel, uh, and also with him that is not here with us this day. This covenant is made with even those who are not present, who are not here this day. Uh, that is binding succeeding generations to this covenant through their forefathers, their official representatives. That is why God charges later generations of Israel with their breaking the covenant of their fathers in Jeremiah 11.10. How could they break a covenant to which they are not bound? They could only break it if they were bound by it. And yet it was said to be the covenant of their fathers. Seventh, the Nazarite covenant. In Numbers 6, verses 1 through 21. 
When a child was made a Nazarite from birth, the parent made such a covenant or vow to God on behalf of the child before the child was able to give his consent. This was true of Samson in Judges 13, verses 5 and 7. It was true of Samuel in 1 Samuel 1.11. And it was true of John the Baptist in Luke 1.15. No consent on the part of the child, and yet the child is bound by the covenant that is made by the parent on behalf of the child, the official representative. Eighth, number eight, the covenant made with the Gibeonites, which again is what we have considered. I'll not elaborate any more on that in Joshua chapter nine. Nine, the covenant made between David and Jonathan in First Samuel chapter 20. Verses 16 and 42. There, that covenant is indicated that Jonathan and David covenant with themselves and for their seed after them, their posterity after them, forever, it says, forever. This covenant bound not only David and Jonathan, but also bound their posterity forever without the consent of the posterity. Ten, the covenant made with David in particular in Psalm 89, verses 2 and 3. We read, well, I'm not reading obviously all the passages that pertain to these points. I'm letting you know where to look them up but uh, so you can check these things out in your own spare time. But uh, this one I will read, Psalm 89, verses 2 and 3, where it says, For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. And then verse 4. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. This covenant did not require the consent of David's seed. But God continued to show mercy to David's covenant-breaking seed for the sake of the covenant God made with David. The phrase appears many, many times in the historical narrative in Kings and Chronicles. For David's sake, for David's sake, God showed mercy to this wicked king or to that wicked king. For David's sake, for David's sake, for David's sake. And without their, without uh, the uh, assent, without the engagement into that covenant by, by the uh, seed or posterity of David. Eleven, the covenant Jonadab made with his posterity. In Jeremiah chapter 35, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah uses the example of the posterity of Jonadab to illustrate the descending obligation of covenants to posterity and accuses Judah of gross covenant breaking in not keeping the national covenant made with their fathers at Mount Sinai, whereas the posterity of Jonadab had kept the covenant their father made on behalf of his posterity for the past 275 years. 
You read that in Jeremiah chapter 35, verse 14. They didn't, Jonadab didn't ask his posterity, what do you think about this covenant? He entered into this covenant for all succeeding generations and they were bound because again, uh, this is the nature, this is the nature of, of official representatives making covenant on behalf of posterity. Twelve, the brotherly covenant made between Israel and Tyre and Amos 1.9. This national covenant of peace was made between Solomon, king of Israel, and Hiram, king of Tyre, as the official representatives of their respective kingdoms about 225 years earlier than the words that we find in Amos where Tyre had broken the brotherly covenant. It couldn't be still in place. It could not be broken unless it was still in place. It could not be uh, uh, broken unless it continued to bind posterity. Because this covenant was broken by Tyre 225 years after it was made, God holds this Gentile nation. Notice again, it's not just limited to Jews. God held this, this Gentile nation responsible for covenant breaking because their official representatives made covenant on behalf of all their posterity. Thirteen, the covenant made in baptism on behalf of children. In Acts 16.15, 1 Corinthians 1.16, we see the matter of household baptism, where, again, children are baptized on the basis of a believing parent being in covenant with the Lord. Just as Joshua could say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He could speak as the official representative for his whole house in Joshua 24.15. So the Christian parent who brings his or her child to the Lord likewise declares that this child is brought into covenant with God as were the posterity of Abraham when they were only eight days old in Abraham's case. These covenant blessings and duties rest upon our children without their consent by virtue of the covenant of grace established between God and believing parents. Number 14, last one. Likewise, the Magna Carta, the colonial charters, treaties between nations, laws and constitutions are recognized and acknowledged to become binding upon children, not because they personally give their consent to them, but because they are the posterity of those who are bound by such covenants, contracts, and treaties. Bound how? By way of official representatives for the posterity. This is not only, therefore, a biblical principle. It is not only a principle which we find in Scripture but it is one upon which all nations function, not realizing that they, in effect, owe it to the God who has established the way we relate to one another and the way we relate to him entirely by way of covenant. 
Number three, the last main point is application of this principle to the Solemn League and Covenant. As we have seen in the examples of covenants found in Scripture cited above, that when the official representatives swear a covenant that includes the posterity, it binds all of the posterity, whether they consent or whether they don't consent, provided the terms of the covenant are agreeable to God's word. In the example of the covenants found in Scripture cited above, this principle is not limited to the Jews, for some of the covenants above include Gentiles as well. This principle was not limited by time, for after hundreds of years, the covenants continued to bind posterity. This principle was true whether it was two men covenanting, as with David and Jonathan, or whether it was between Israel and the other nations. This principle was true whether it was a covenant between men or whether it was a covenant between God and men. The mere passing of time did not annul the binding obligation of a lawful covenant to all posterity. This is the necessary conclusion we must then draw from the facts stated above. When the Parliament of England in 1643 and the King of England, Charles II, in 1650 and 1651, as the official representative or representatives of their posterity swore the Solemn League and Covenant for themselves, and all their heirs and successors, and swore for all their national posterity, which included all his majesty's dominions in North America. And when the crown of Britain entered into a covenant with the dominions in North America to guarantee to their loyal subjects all liberties, rights, and privileges guaranteed to those who live in Britain, the colonies as the national posterity of Britain were likewise in covenant with the Lord as his covenanted people. Even if they did not personally consent or engage themselves to it, and even if they did not like it, they despised it or even hated it, they were as a people in covenant with the Lord by means of the Solemn League and Covenant. But did they continue to be bound by the Solemn League and Covenant after they declared their independence from Great Britain and formed their own nation with their own constitution? Well, we'll try to answer that question next time. We will look more closely at that question in the next sermon. And so you'll have to hold that one until we come together again. Amen. Let us stand before the Lord in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.